We are back. Disability Law Show. John Scholes here. And Tamara Gopian is the expert answering all of the questions. You can contribute to the show. You're always uh, always encouraged to do so, by the way. And how do you do that? Uh, you can email, first of all, help at disabilityrights.ca. And uh, the phone number anytime. Tamara's got a uh, busy crew there, always ready to talk to you. one 821 5900 like we do every week on the show we got a ton of questions coming in through email and through the website called mydisabilityquestions.com we'll get to those very shortly here tomorrow but we always start off with the case of the day or a week that was something that's happening on your end pal what do you uh, what do you got going on this week so this week i am working on a claim for a client who has been diagnosed with fibromyalgia mm-hmm. and this is a condition john that we talk about occasionally on our shows because it's one where there isn't really a clear treatment path. The symptoms for conditions like fibromyalgia can vary from claimant to claimant, patient to patient. And you can see that this could frustrate insurance adjusters who have very little knowledge on medical things. And they look at these profiles and they say, it's not objective. We can't see it on a scan. We don't understand why why you can't work and you've got maybe some pain, maybe some stomach issues, maybe some headaches, this and that, and that every day is not the same and you should be definitely able to continue working and managing these symptoms. And so with my client's uh, situation in particular, I I give her a lot of credit. She actually worked with her employer for a long time to continue working with all of these health issues that were going on. And she hadn't been diagnosed on for a number of years. So again, that's, you know, a collection of different symptoms uh, that had been impacting her. And so she reduced her work schedule and continued to work. But it got to a point where it just wasn't sustainable. And she was doing, you know, working from home and that kind of thing. Those were options for her. Uh, She had an office-based type job, but just very detail-oriented things. She was a manager for a large company. She had staff she had to monitor um, and things she had to keep organized. And part of the symptoms that she was experiencing were headaches and headaches that had vision loss and hearing uh, issues associated with them. And then she had body pain and so a whole host of things. Anyway, at some point, her uh, and her doctor decided, look, enough's enough. Let's just take a break and just see if this improves your conditions. And of course, she followed medical advice. She took that break. She applied for short-term disability. And she didn't get actually a lot of resistance for the short-term claim. And she was approved for for the short-term period. I think it was something like four months. And then it came time to transition her to long-term. And the long-term was with a different insurance company. So she had to put together a full long-term disability application that included a form that she completes, a form from her doctor, and then uh, you know more information from her employer. And at that point, as I've been reviewing the claims file, John, <laughs> there was a lot of dialogue between the insurance company and you know my client's employer about her work status and how much work she was actually doing and what were her essential duties. Because at this initial phase of long-term disability claims, the insurance company is required to look to see What are your health issues and what are your job duties? And are you then, quote unquote, totally disabled from doing those job duties? And so part of, I think, the challenge, and they denied, by the way, John, they denied out of the gates and they continue to deny over three appeals. My client appealed three times to the insurance company. It was almost a year or more before yeah, she came to a point where she realized, look, I'm not getting anywhere with the insurance company. 
and they're obviously not acknowledging, she had reports from her family doctor, a rheumatologist, a physiotherapist, and a physiatrist, which is somebody who's an expert in bone, nerve, and muscle issues. And all of that information was cavalierly set aside and said, no, you know what? It's just not severe enough because she was working this reduced work capacity. And they deemed her to be basically a part-time employee, which she wasn't, and said, you could still keep working part-time at your job and deal with all of these health issues. My theory is, is that because two things, fibromyalgia eventually got diagnosed. So I think the label wasn't there, not that it's needed. And we say that on these shows all the time, the symptoms should be enough and the courts say that they're enough, but the label wasn't there before um, the insurance company denied their claim. And I think the other part of it, of course, is that she was already doing a job that is the fallback position for insurance companies for the kinds of things that they do in their adjudication. So mm -hmm. their fallback is, oh, you can do a part-time office job from home, and so you should be able to work, right? But because she was already roughly in that setting as it was, and they knew they wouldn't really have an exit strategy, and by the way, she's relatively young, they thought, you know what, we're going to resist this claim from the start, and we're going to continue resisting the claim. So. I thought I would feature fibromyalgia in particular because it is a fairly misunderstood type of condition, John, and one that insurance companies will absolutely deny. And as you can see, my poor client many times over, despite the fact that there are lots of doctors who will support that there are health issues going on that do restrict claimants, pain being the big one, and then a whole host of other things that go along with it. And because it's difficult to diagnose and not, you know, it's it's hard to see in any sort of specific type of, of treatment or um, testing, insurance companies will deny the claims. And I really do think that it deters even patients and claimants to seek the right treatment for it because it's not really clear. So they don't really know where to go and don't really know how to direct their doctors on where to send them for further treatment options. And so again, I give my client a lot of credit that you know, she and her doctor had a really good relationship and they sort of ran this down to a bunch of different specialists until that fibromyalgia diagnosis was made. But that doesn't mean that the insurance companies are going to be compelled necessarily out of the gates to approve these types of claims. And it's not linear, right? Insurance companies like it to be linear. They want a beginning, a middle and an end <laughs> because the end means they don't have to pay you anymore. And so when these kinds of uh, difficult or unusual type of disability claims or subjectively based, you know, disability claims are the ones that are being resisted. This is really where we are primed to help these kinds of people, John. I can assure you that we are not going to get this kind of resistance at the upcoming mediation. It's not going to be a conversation around whether or not my client is totally disabled at all. But in fact, how long is she going to meet that requirement of total disability and what that compensation is going to look like for her? Because the lawyers know what I know, which is that courts don't necessarily need that diagnosis. They simply need support for those symptoms that support a claim that makes it so that an individual is not capable of working. Full stop. And if that profile sounds familiar, if you're listening out there, please don't hesitate to assert your legal rights against the insurance company for what you are owed. 
Yeah, it's like, you know, it, it's this could go on for another 20 years, uh, you know, tomorrow and they're still going to deny and play the odds that people aren't going to get up and stand up for themselves because, you know, they're they're weak, they're tired, they're in pain, and they don't want to have this big battle with the insurance company. So it's, it's, it's a wrong line of thinking if they would just call you and find out, which we encourage them to do, of course, hence the reason we do this show. But, you know, this just continues on and on. But there's always, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, I guess you could say, when dealing with these guys because they just, they like to deny people, right? They do. And I think that what frustrates me most is that that appeal process, that process that's so long, it's so murky. There's no transparency to claimants about what they're doing or how long it will take, right? And it does run down that clock to actually start that legal claim. And it wears you down and it wears down your doctors who've provided report upon report to support your claim. And people do give up, John. It's it's unbelievable the percentage of people who simply say, you know what, I'm just going to try and either not work or, you know, maybe I do a few hours, maybe my employer will allow me to do a few hours. You know, I think that that's the part of it that frustrates me the most is that it does work. The insurance company strategies around this do does work to make people prevent them from moving forward, from actually doing something that they are entitled to do, that they're absolutely in their legal rights to do, which is to assert a claim and get that compensation that they deserve. And I think what resonated with me with my particular client is that we probably could have had the claim resolved in the time that it took her to do those appeals, right, John? And we could have supported all of the things that, look, she did admirably, admirably, she had her husband helping her, but we could have done all of those things for her, Get, getting the medical reports, getting the statements that are needed from her treating practitioners, making sure that she's, you know, getting, accessing those, those treatment efforts and really focusing on her recovery, however that's going to look so that we can then take on the burden of having to deal with all the nonsense with the insurance company. And so, look, I think that this game, so to speak, works for insurance companies because they continue to have record-breaking profits. They are going to continue, you know, accepting those premiums and trying to resist otherwise valid disability claims. And they are going to dangle that carrot of appeals so that people eventually get so tired that they give up. And, you know, John, I was mentioning earlier that I was reviewing this claims file. And I do that, you know, we get retained, I will get the complete file that these insurance companies have on my client. And I will comb through that I'll create the legal claim and then I'll look at it again to formulate, you know, the mediation material. And in this particular one, it's so uh, routine, I I suppose, in what we talk about on our shows. Same adjuster, John, looking at the same information, saying no two, three times over, and only by the third time may go out and get a, a, a medical opinion of his own to try and make the justification to close out the claim. And then again, says no once more. So it's not like there's a whole committee of people looking at it or different people at the company reviewing it or greater expertise. In this situation, the appeals were all reviewed by the claims, the same claims adjuster, which is why these, these things are smoke and mirrors. They are not yeah. going to get people the entitlements and the rights that they need, not unless they assert their rights through a legal claim. And again, reaching out, as you always should, if uh, not just for a chat, it's one 821 5900 to reach Tamar and her team, help at disabilityrights.ca. Now, I did mention mydisabilityquestions.com. That is where we're going to go. I want to get to our first one for the show uh, today. Tamar says, guys, my husband has leukemia. It's been off work since spending 66 days in hospital, December 19th of 2019, right up to February 24th, 2020. 
He's on long-term disability through work and CPP disability. The doctor just said he can go back to work, but only one hour a day. His work called and wants him to sign off as terminated due to frustration of contract. They say he will keep his long-term disability, but how can we trust that the insurance company will keep paying him once he's no longer employed, right? He just turned 57 years old and has worked for the company for 29 years. Any advice? Thank you. Wow. This is a really tough one because... You know, there's no way to necessarily preserve your employment. And what ends up happening, John, is that eventually there's this legal concept that comes up that's called frustration of contract. This is a situation where either one side or the other of the employment relationship, so either the employee or the employer, are not able to meet their side of the employment bargain. And in a situation where the employee's health is what's preventing him or her from returning back to work, then the employer may trigger on the basis of medical information that the employment relationship is frustrated. Not that there's truly a termination per se, but that simply the employee cannot meet their end of the employment relationship. And so this is an important concept in disability as well, which is why actually, John, myself and and many others on our team work on both sides of our practice areas, Mm -hmm. both in disability litigation and employment litigation, because you can see when individuals have been off from work for a long time, as it certainly sounds like from this question, that eventually the return to work may not be happening. And then there are some concerns around what happens with the employment relationship. So look, I don't like the idea necessarily of someone just simply accepting that their employer is saying frustration of contract. Right away, I'm going to uh, recommend that, you know, there be a proper employment consultation. I think it's really important because it is technical, it's a legal term, and it has to be based in proper medical information. Mm -hmm. So if there is a prospect for a return to work, then the employer may be triggering this frustration of contract improperly. Also, I have seen, John, employers trigger this frustration of contract and not compensate people properly when they do so. And if you're an employee that's covered under the Employment Standards Act, you are entitled to certain minimum amounts under the Act for even frustration of contract for disability. And you want to make sure that you're receiving that compensation and that your employer is just not simply washing his or her hands of you just because you're currently on a disability leave and your health is preventing you from returning. So I think there's some complexities here, especially when you've got someone who's got long service. If there are any components of this where the employer is not being appropriate in triggering this, or there should be a further discussion around accommodation, then the complexion of this changes completely. And there could be some substantial severance entitlements. You know, we've got lots of resources on our employment law shows as well, if individuals are interested in learning more about it. But this is one where I think an employment consultation makes a lot of sense because you're still working through your LTD claim and you want to get some clear advice medically as to whether or not you're capable of returning and whether that job should be preserved at the end of the day. Take a short break. Get back to more of your emails and questions. Again, the emails help at disabilityrights.ca and the number 1-855-821-5900. Disability Law Show continues. Hang in there. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. John Schools here. Tamar Agopian, Samfiru Tamarkin, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Always encouraged to reach out. 
have that discussion. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, we were getting to a question, or at least we were discussing before the uh, the break tomorrow from mydisabilityquestions.com, and this person who is off is concerned that they can, you know, can they trust that insurance company will keep paying them once they're no longer employee, employed because the frustration of co- contract has come up, right? Right. And so I think what's important to understand in that scenario is that LTD, yes, is likely tied to your employment. Most of the LTD policies that we talk about on our shows are group disability policies. So they've got a group of employees working for the same employer and it's the same insurance company and policy that insures all these individuals. And so just because it's tied though to your employment doesn't necessarily mean that the disability insurer isn't required to keep paying you that LTD benefit even if you're not job attached, that's what we call it. So for example, in this question, if this individual loses their job, but they are still getting long-term disability benefits in that time frame, they're still entitled to continue getting long-term as long as they're meeting the requirements of the policy. So if the doctor is still supporting that they can't work, then their long-term disability benefits should continue whether they've got a job to go back to or not. So. I don't want individuals to feel like just because their employment may be coming to an end, that it necessarily means that their LTD benefits are going to come to an end. Look, could there be some influence? I know adjusters don't like to admit this, but I know insurance adjusters look at this and they say, well, gosh, we don't have a job to send this person back to. So when we cut them off and we say they can do their job, I guess we're going to have to be in a situation where we're going to have to send them back into the world without a job. So I know that that influences how long-term disability insurers look at these kinds of claims, but it shouldn't matter. That's the key, right, John? That just because you've lost your job, it doesn't mean that you're not necessarily entitled to LTD. I'm actually even going to take it one step, step further, John, and say this. If someone is terminated and they have a disability that is given rise just before or just after their termination, if it's happening within that notice period that you get with your compensation when you're terminated, you can still make a disability claim, usually short-term and then potentially even long-term down the road. And so when these issues come up, if you've got a health issue and your job status is in the mix, you want to make sure that you're protecting yourself and you are moving forward with an application for disability benefits in that scenario so that you're not out of time and you're not in a situation where the insurance company is saying, well, your coverage has ended, right? So you want to secure that right to disability benefits in that window if your disability has been given rise to just shortly after your termination or just before. Let's move on down to Arlene. Uh, complete uh, complete answer right there. Arlene says, guys have uh, had chronic headaches for over two years. I took sick leave last year for four months. I've been getting better, but I missed a lot of work since then. My condition is now getting worse. There are many days when it's debilitating and I cannot function. Do I have a chance at LTD? I'd applied for critical illness benefits through our group insurance, was denied. I have documentation and notes from my doctor as well. What do you think, tomorrow? This is a really interesting one because Arlene's talking to us about disability benefits and she's talking to us about critical illness. So I'm going to try and deal with both of those issues, John. Let's start with the disability part of it first. Um, And this is really reminiscent to what I was talking about at the top of the show. She's got chronic headaches. Chronic headaches are absolutely a valid disability claim, but I put it into the group of other subjective claims like chronic pain fibromyalgia, which is what I talked about at the top of the show, and a variety of other types of symptoms that are symptoms that are disabling, 
but are difficult to document pattern and don't fit within that need box that the insurance adjuster wants to put our lien into. And so I am not surprised that she has had some resistance to a potential claim for, for benefits, but she's got to make sure that she's making a claim for short-term and long-term disability benefits and not necessarily critical illness. There's a difference. Okay. There's a difference. Disability benefits are there. If your health is preventing you from working at the job that you were doing at the time that you stopped working. Mm -hmm. And so for Arlene, she tells us that she's got the support of her doctors. So that tells me that there is a potentially a good chance or at least a basis for her to make that disability application. So she should do that without delay. Could it be resisted because it's a subjective claim? Maybe, but at least you've secured your right to that benefit once you've made the application. You don't apply. That's a massive problem, right? Insurance companies can say, you didn't apply. You didn't apply in time. We didn't have an opportunity to look at any of this. And so we're, you know, we're not going to look at your claim. There's all these technical reasons why we're going to deny. We're not even going to look to see if your, your chronic headaches meet the disability test. So that's one feature of it. The critical illness side of it, that's a different insurance product, John. It's one that has very specific list of illnesses that are included that will give you typically a one-time compensation. Long-term disability, short-term disability. It is an income compensation, but usually it's paid month over month. Critical illness is usually a one lump sum payment. And critical illness will include, as you would imagine, critical illnesses. And so (laughs) I suspect that chronic headaches is not on that list. So I'm actually not surprised that Arlene got a rejection on her CI claim, critical illness claim, for if the medical basis is chronic headaches. But Arlene, I'm happy to look at the policy. So this is the other part of it is that this is why we do what we do, John, is because we are, you know, the ones that have seen all of these policies. We've reviewed them time and time again. We've had lots of experience. And I'm interested to see what what Arlene's CI claim includes, because if there's a medical connection to what is going on with her and one of these critical illnesses, then perhaps there is an avenue to get her compensation, not only for disability benefits, but also for critical illness. But from what she's described in her email to us, I think the answer is for her to make that that disability application and see where that goes, Um, especially when she says it's debilitating and she cannot function. That's the key. To me, that's the right recipe for a successful disability application and claim. Arlene, if that's not enough, which it's uh, probably a good start, you can always reach out now by phone. Love to have you call in tomorrow and the team. That's uh, 1-855-821-5900 is how you do that, or mydisabilityquestions.com for any further questions. Uh, frequently asked questions. Let's get to one of these. When an insurance company denies my claim because it says I don't have any objective medical evidence, they love that term. What does that mean? How do you fight it? How do you address it? What do you think? Oh, there's a theme going on today, John, definitely a theme. Um, And so this is a classic line, right, by insurance companies. You do not have enough objective medical evidence. I don't even know where these words have come from, John, but man, they have been the golden ticket for these insurance companies to deny otherwise absolutely valid disability claims. What I think they're after is x-rays, ultrasounds, MRIs, I don't know, maybe even doctor's clinical notes. They are looking for something in black and white, so to speak, that will confirm that there is something happening medically to support that this person cannot work. But where it misses, and this is what the courts have said, 
it misses when you're dealing with subjective claims. And there are so many, John. Mental health is the one that comes up in my mind most prevalently. That is absolute depression, anxiety, anxiety, PTSD. There's a whole ADHD. There's a whole host of mental health conditions that can impact someone from not being able to do their job and will not meet this quote unquote objective medical evidence requirement. And so how do you fight this? You can absolutely challenge disability insurers on this basis. Number one, because I know courts have slapped the wrist of insurance companies and awarded damages against them for using these kinds of terms and reasons for denying claims. But more importantly is because you can establish medical support for these types of claims that should then translate into you being entitled to LTD benefits. And so I would not hesitate for a moment that just because it's not something that's seen in an MRI or an ultrasound, that it's not an otherwise valid disability claim, medical notes, reports, narrative reports from a psychologist, psychiatrist. There's so many different options of things that we do, John, to successfully get compensation for our clients in situations where the insurance company has lobbed this term to say, you don't have enough objective medical evidence to support your disability. And if you want to, uh, by the way, reach out to this website, Build Just For You. It's not full of, you know, it's not mired in legalese. It's very simple to use called ltdfaq.ca, ltdfaq.ca, since we're taking some FAQs here. Uh, more of those coming up, a very common one that we get all the time on the show uh, just ahead uh, tomorrow. But in the meantime, reaching out to tomorrow and her team, do so. Don't hesitate. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number anytime, one 855 821-5900. This is the Disability Law Show. There is more coming up. Stand by. Yes, this is the Disability Law Show. Good to have you here. Tamara Gopian is our lawyer, always present, answering your questions on and off air. By the way, you want to reach out, one 821 5900 No obligation there. Just have that phone call. Help at disabilityrights.ca is the email you can use as well. And uh, some frequently asked questions. We've gone through a few of these on the show tomorrow. These ones are kind of outstanding because we get them all the time. And when it comes to people on benefit, they worry about deductions that the, uh, you know, the insurance company could be snooping around. Around, maybe take a, take some back, like uh, rental income. We get that on us all the time. If they get an inheritance uh, money or work safe work compensation benefits, you know, dividend payments on stocks, all that stuff. How much access does the insurance company have to claw some of that money back? Yeah, I I, I don't love the clawbacks, John. I gotta just I'm just putting it out there, and I'm gonna explain. Yeah. This is a really good question, but I really don't love the clawbacks. Um, it really frustrates me that these insurance companies can enrich in themselves by getting clawbacks from other sources of income that individuals have access to while they're on disability. That's what this question is really about. And it's one that applies, you know, across the country, right? We, we work across the country um, and there are federally based benefits, for example, CPP disability is the one that comes to mind that applies for anyone in the country who has a disability that's severe and prolonged. And this is the number one ticket item for disability insurers because you could get on average about $1,000 a month from the government up to about 1500 and change. And if your disability benefit is $3,000 a month, then half of that is coming from the government now and the insurance company only has to pay you the balance. And so these insurance companies know this and they have crafted their policies to specifically have sections that say, we're going to pay you a disability benefit which by the way is already reduced from your full salary. So we're already paying you something like two thirds of what you're making. But if you get these other sources of income, we're gonna deduct it. And my view of it is this, 
if it's not specifically listed in that list of stuff, they don't get their hands on it, John. So, you know, one of the examples you gave, for example, was rental income. You know, rental income is an interesting one because in, in a lot of situations, if you've got a property from which you're getting rental income, it's somewhat passive. You're not actually quote unquote working. You've probably got a tenant in there and you've got maybe some basic maintenance to do at best. And you're just collecting that rent month over month. And if the policy doesn't really talk about um, rental income, which many don't, then I really don't think that the insurance company is entitled to that clawback for any income that you're receiving. So, but the words are important. And so you do want to see what your specific policy says about those clawbacks or deductions. You know, similar with something like inheritance money or a lottery win, for example, like something so unusual that would happen perhaps while you're on disability. And that's key, by the way, you have to be on disability for them to even get their hands on it. Um, but this is not money that you're getting because you're either disabled or because you are working. And so I think it's outside of the orbit or the realm of what the insurance company is entitled to get. One of the other ones that does come up quite often though is workers' compensation or work safe claims and benefits. Again, this is a provincially based um, disability benefit. So Ontario's got something different, BC's got something different, Alberta's got something different. But the idea is similar. If you are an employee and you are injured at work or you suffer you know, mental health distress as a result of an incident at work, then you may be entitled to benefits that are specific to a workplace illness or injury. And that's what these uh, benefit plans are, this work safe workers compensation. And it's totally a separate entity, John. It's not the type of work that we do, uh, but we are aware of it because these disability policies do make it very clear that they get a credit for that as well. And the workers compensation one is interesting because it's actually at a higher level usually it, from what you're getting for LTD. So let's do a little bit of math. My least favorite subject, John. Um, no kidding. You know, if, you, if you're getting, you know, two-thirds for LTD, so that's 66.67% of 100% of your salary, okay? Then that is the level that your LTD benefit is set. And then you're approved for workers' compensation for not only rehabilitation support payments, which is one thing that they do, but also an income support. Well, the workers' compensation is at 70% of what you were making before. And so you take 67 and two-thirds minus 70%. Well, guess what? The insurance company is ahead in that situation. Actually, they don't pay. There are situations where I've seen that the LTD insurer has said, we've approved your disability, but because you're getting more money from workers' compensation and we get a credit for that, we don't actually have to pay you. It's a little bit complicated. I grant you that, listeners. But just be aware that there can be an interaction between what you're getting for workers' comp and what you might be entitled to for LTD. But LTD doesn't get a pass, John. If workers' compensation stops paying you, and I hear that they do that quite routinely, guess who has to start paying you again? LTD insurance. So I really do think that in scenarios like this where you're not sure about deductions, you're not sure what information the insurance company is entitled to, you really want to get some good advice. Our consultations are absolutely free. Please send me your disability policy. Let me put some eyes on it and I can give you an answer within less than five minutes. And if you're not sure, you best be armed with this kind of information so that 
you know, I really do believe knowledge is power. And then that way, you know, okay, going into it, these are my rights. This is what I'm expected to get by way of compensation. Do I get the full kilt from LTD? Is that what I'm supposed to get? Or are they going to get these other credits and deductions along the way if I come into some money? And what does that look like for me? And with that, we got a couple more questions and lots more emails and questions from MyDisabilityQuestions.com. By the way, that website, free and anonymous for you to use, MyDisabilityQuestions.com. We'll bounce over to that shortly. But uh, one more break as we get into it here and the number trailing off as we get into that break, one 821 5900 and help at DisabilityRights.ca. This is the Disability Law Show. we got more coming up. Hang on. And back with a few more minutes of the Disability Law Show. Good to have you along. John Scholes here hosting as always, but the brains of the operation always here Tamara Gobian Samfiru Tamark and LLP reach out to Tamara and her team if you want to just have a chat maybe talk about something you hear on the show one week or if you have a personal matter that's okay it's all welcome one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca for short easy to, to read and digest notes about the LTD topics we talk about ltdfaq.ca now we were uh, answering some of those questions Tamara that I just made right. reference to uh, qualifying period Period, elimination period, this language, what does it all mean in that LTD policy? Uh, so before I answer that question, John, I just, I, I think it's important for our listeners to know that these terms, okay, there are a lot of terms with disability and I get that most people are like, what are you talking about? Qualifying <laughs> period, elimination period, you know, own occupation. I know. We have an excellent, an excellent memo on our website, ltdfaq.ca, that talks about all of these terms. I think it's like even a glossary, John, that people can just go to and it unpacks each and every one of these terms that people have probably never heard of. Most people, John, this is the first time they're making a disability claim, right? And so they're faced with, you know, pages and pages of letters from the insurance company, forms they have to look at, words that they've never had to deal with. Maybe their doctors don't even know what they're dealing with. And so we have found that having these resources, these kinds of memos where we unpack the words and, you know, how to deal with adjusters and other topics are extremely helpful, even just as a starting point, because I know people shy away from talking to lawyers. I get that. Um, but this is why we do our shows. This is why we have the websites. So with that context in mind, uh, what is the qualifying or elimination period? What does that mean? When we talk about disability insurance, we talk about it in a broad sense, but really there's two aspects to it. There's short-term disability and long-term disability. And one starts with short-term, as you would think, short. And then if it's prolonged, it then goes to long-term. And so Short-term disability usually is there for disabilities that go beyond seven days and then last for up to four to six months. Actually, in disability, we talk about it in weeks. Usually, short-term is 17 to 26 weeks. But, John, nobody knows how to make that calculation. Again, more math for us today. Uh, But generally, it's four to six months, right? And then only after that is someone entitled to long-term disability. And so... Let's say you're in a situation where your employer doesn't have a short-term disability plan. In that instance, usually most people will apply for EI sickness benefits, which is a government-based benefit for individuals who have disabilities, and that covers you for about 15 weeks. Only after that period of time do you then apply and it may be entitled to long-term. And what the long-term disability policy will say is, We don't start to pay you long-term until you've satisfied the qualifying period or the elimination period. It's just a hold period, John. 
it's a period of time where they're going to look to see if you meet the test of disability. And if you do, then the LTD benefits will kick in. So that hold period usually will line up with what the short-term disability period is. So if your policy or plan has, you know, a 17 or 26 week short-term period, then your long-term isn't going to kick in until after that gets run out. If your employer doesn't have that kind of a plan and you're going to seek other sources of income, that's okay too. But just bear in mind that you're not getting LTD. That first payment date isn't going to happen until that hold period is done. And so you want to know what that hold period is so that you need to know how to manage your finances and you don't want to miss out on actually making an LTD application in that time frame. The LTD policy will say you've got to make a claim within, you know, 60 days, 30 days, 90 days of the elimination period. They actually make reference to this hold period and tie that to when you have to notify the insurance company that you've got a claim. So it's an important period of time. But it's one that I think is strategic. So now I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit and just make a comment out there in the world to say, hey, LTD is looking to see that you're sick enough. That's really what they want. They want to wait you out to see how bad your disability is, really how much medical support that you have. And if you do not satisfy that total disability for that period of time, they're going to do what they did to my client that I said at the top of the show. They're going to deny your claim. And they're going to keep denying that claim because they know that after four to six months, if you haven't received any compensation, a lot of people will be put in a very difficult situation where they have to make some difficult choices between their health and their financial situation. And you never want to be put in that position. And I actually think it's really, really difficult that insurers do that for individuals, which is, of course, why we do what we do every day and why I think it's important people understand how to navigate these waters with disability insurers get the advice you need. There's lots of information out there. Would I be right to assume this happens every time you make a claim? Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't they put you through that, right? Yes, it does. You know, John, there's one insurer that has actually included this idea of the elimination period and continuous total disability into their definition of disability. So we talk about total disability, you know, this is like the make rich quick type <laughs> words that insurance yeah. companies have used. And one insurer has added the word continuous through the elimination period. So, you know, not, and, and you see that even as a doctor or as a claimant and you think, well, my, well, my patient isn't always, always disabled. They're not always laying up in bed every single day. So maybe it means that they're not continuously totally disabled, but that is not the test. That is not the test. And so I just don't want people to be deterred, even though I know that these words are overwhelming, they're hard to understand, and it does deter a lot of people from advancing their disability claims. I think we just strip it back and keep it very simple because that is what the courts have said, which is if your doctors are supporting that you cannot work, you are absolutely entitled to the disability benefit that is you know, entitled to you under this disability policy regardless of these terms that the insurance company throws at you, excuses that they might be making, at the end of the day, if your doctors are supporting that you cannot work, then that is the full stop basis upon which you should be getting your disability benefit. All right, tomorrow, let's get to one more question from uh, mydisabilityquestions.com. Simple says, my policy has a three-year own occupation. I received a letter in the mail from my insurer one year prior to the change of definition that they have looked at my case and my benefits will continue past that change of definition. Can I assume my case, mental health issues, has been deemed serious by the insurer and their internal doctor has signed off on it? That'd be nice. 
What do you think? My psychiatrist and psychologist and GP were not asked to provide any medical updates prior to the letter from the insurer. I've been accepted for CPPD and the disability tax credit as well. Now, can I assume, based on the approval passed of definition one year in advance, that I may only have to submit the annual yearly update going forward? After my CPPD approval, my updates changed to a brief six-month update. Thank you. A little confusing, but yeah. There's a lot there. There's a lot there, John. So... Um, let's start with this idea of the change of definition and maybe, um, you know, we can, uh, leave some of these questions, uh, for another time. But the, the key here is, is that there is a definition change in most disability policies that say, you know, once you've achieved a year or two of benefits, then the test will change to say, are you totally disabled from any occupation? Not the job you were doing beforehand, but in any setting, given what your education, training, and experience is. And some insurers will actually send a letter very early on before that change of definition saying, we've looked at your situation and we actually think you'll be approved in a year beyond that change of definition. But the quick answer here is no, there are no guarantees that just because the insurance company today is saying that you're going to continue getting your benefits, that you can bank on the fact that that's going to happen. It does absolutely help that this uh, individual has been approved for the disability tax credit and the CPP disability program. Why is that important is because that test to qualify for those types of benefits is if you've got a severe and prolonged disability. Those words just alone that I've said, John, are definitely in my mind a higher test and a tougher test to meet than the one in the disability policies that say, are you totally disabled from any occupation? But none of it is a guarantee because really at the end of the day, if the insurance company can find an opportunity to cut off your claim, they will do that. Even if they've promised that those benefits are going to continue, even if they've changed their update request to six months as opposed to every month or every two months, you've got to continue to demonstrate that you've got a disability that prevents you from working. And the hope and expectation is that your benefits will continue, but you can't necessarily bank on it. Because as we know, if there's an opportunity for an insurance company to cut you off, they will do that. And with that, we are done. Excellent stuff, my friend. You want to reach out to Tamar now, which we always tell you to do so. Have that question. Could be for you, family member, colleague. Don't uh, don't worry about that. one 821 5900 email address, always help at disabilityrights.ca. And any further questions can be asked anonymously, mind you, mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show.